lives tell that story and let our lips sing that song. We pray in the name of the one who is life for us. Amen. I know you've all heard the classic conundrum question put to people in various ways. It goes like this. If you were stranded on a deserted island and you could only pick one thing to have with you other than food and water, what would you pick? Someone once asked that question of G.K. Chesterton, a famous writer and thinker, Christian writer and thinker from last, or the 1800s. And his immediate answer was Thomas's guide, practical guide to shipbuilding, which I love. So let me reframe that question in a way that fits with our series and with the conversation we're having together today. If you were to have the chance to share your faith with someone today, and you could pick only one additional thing to have as a resource, what would it be? Well, I think if we're honest, for a lot of us, being in that situation feels a little bit like being stranded on a deserted island. Yikes! What do I say? What do I do? What if I don't know the answer? What if I say something and offend that person? Uh, pretty soon in that moment, we would start spelling out help on the beach. Maybe you would find yourself thinking, I know, I would pick a, a lightning fast processing brain like Mark Laberton has. Or I would pick a seminary degree like Rob Iman and Brentley Jordan have. Or I would pick a, a charming and easygoing personality like Dulcie Abraham and Glenn Balsas have. But here's, here's the interesting thing to notice, I think. That when, when we start thinking about having a conversation about our faith, most of us start thinking immediately of what we lack, of what we don't have to be able to have that sort of a conversation effectively. So here's the tension that we often feel when it comes to sharing our faith. I mean, on the one hand, there's the commandment that Jesus gave to the church to go and make disciples. And we know that each of us, we are called to share our faith and to lead others to Christ. And on the other hand, most of us just don't feel capable of fulfilling that commandment because we feel like we are lacking something that's, that's necessary for us to have an effective conversation about our faith. I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel gifted. I don't feel equipped. So I don't feel inclined. You might especially feel that if you are a student, if you are coming towards or into your adult years and, and you're still grappling with this faith of yours. Maybe your parents were believers and you're, you've, you've been coming towards the faith or into the faith, but you are... Uh, still trying to make it your own. And you feel like, wow, I, I'm still asking all these questions. I don't feel like I have all the answers for them. We can feel like Moses in Exodus 3 and 4, when God asks him to lead his people out of Egypt. And essentially he says, look, God, you've got the wrong guy. So what would you say if I told you that I am convinced that if you are a follower of Jesus and if you had a chance to share your faith today, you would have everything 
that you needed for that conversation. Think with me for a minute about what you already have. As people who have given our allegiance to Jesus, what is it that we have in our pockets that we bring into every conversation we have with someone who is not a follower of Jesus? You have, as Abby so beautifully just sang, you have a, the experience of a life-changing relationship with Jesus. Your relationship with him. Paul in Philippians 3 talks about the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus, of him knowing us, of the difference that his presence makes in absolutely every part of our lives. And think about that difference. And Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 talks about how we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Think about what has, has become a reality in your own life because Jesus is in it. Think of purpose and peace that you experience, forgiveness and hope and, and acceptance, belonging, freedom, a deep sense of fulfillment, a new family that you are part of, a new life that you've been given, a life no longer bent in upon yourself, but turned up towards God and out toward others. I could go on and on. You have a story of your own relationship with Jesus that is powerful and compelling and real. But that's not all. We are not left alone when we have those conversations. Each one of us, if we are a follower of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit, which means that we have the living God residing in us and working in us and through us. And what that means is not only that the Spirit of God is at work in the souls of the, the people, the men, the women, the children that God places around us as we live in our neighborhood and as we go through our day, drawing individuals to himself and bringing them alive spiritually, but it also means that the Spirit is working in us to empower and equip us in any given moment to be able to give expression to our faith. Think, for example, of Matthew chapter 10, verse 20. It will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. In Luke chapter 12, verse 12, the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. This morning, we come to the last message in our series called Salt Life, in which we're wrestling with uh, how to have some of these conversations across lines of difference that, that can be so challenging. And today, we're talking about how to share our faith with those who don't believe what we do. The passage we're looking at this morning is Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. So let's just explore that passage now first, just to hear it, and then we'll walk back through it. Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity, Paul says. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So back up to verse 5, and let's just notice some of the things that are going on in this passage. First of all, I, just, I do, do want to draw your attention to the word outsider. Unfortunately, this is a word that just kind of drips with judgment in the way that we use that word. We've talked about this, how our culture is training us to think in terms of, of our being, of our dividing into camps, and we are in the insider camp. And of course, because this is the way we think, it's the right way to think. And so we are the wise and brilliant ones. And those other people in that other camp who don't think the way they do, they're obviously idiots. And, and then outsider is the label that gets put on that 
that, that group of people in the other camp. This word doesn't have any of those connotations at all. It just literally says those outside. It just means it's talking about you are inside the Christian faith, there are people who are outside the Christian faith. So it's just a term that refers, a neutral term that refers to non-Christians. So Paul goes on. He says, be wise in the way that you act toward those outsiders. Now, I think this is really interesting to notice. He doesn't say, be wise in the way that you talk. And I think that's our immediate association with wisdom. Be wise in the way that you make your points. Be wise in the way that you frame your argument. Be wise in the way you try to convince that other person that you're right. But Paul says, be wise in the way that you act. And this is actually a note that runs through this whole section. I've been thinking about how um, uh, the way that I think of the relative importance of the message and the messenger has shifted so dramatically over the years that I've been a follower of Jesus. To start out with, uh, my, well, first, my first experience of of hearing the gospel or seeing the gospel shared was as people did it to me. And it felt so often to be awkward and intrusive and insensitive. There was just kind of this dump on me of content. So as I first began to hear of this idea that I was supposed to share my faith, I basically said, nope, not me. I'm not going to do that. It's fine for you. It's not for me. Then I eventually became persuaded that I, that was part of what I was supposed to do is to share my faith. So I too adopted the dump truck approach. Uh, I memorized a comprehensive, exhaustive outline of the entire gospel, and then I would ever so subtly pull my dump truck into the person's family room and dump the whole load in the middle of a conversation. Uh, it is actually the case, it turns out, that you can have too much of a good thing. Then I began to realize how important, um, not only uh, how important the, the messenger was to the message, not just as a way of, of trying to um, be more sensitive and gain a good hearing, but I actually came to discover, and now I am deeply persuaded of this, that the messenger is actually part of, maybe the most important part of the message itself. Is what we're saying when we go to a, into a conversation with a non-Christian is, I've given my allegiance to this Jesus. He defines my life. I am now a child of this Heavenly Father uh, that I trust in. So, um, so my life is, should be putting his character on display. You, it is appropriate that you would draw conclusions about what God is like based on how I relate to you in this conversation. Oh, I've been making my way towards learning what just right looks like. It isn't just about what we say. It's about how we say it. Paul says, be wise in the way that you act. Now, just continue staying this thought with me a little bit longer. Think about how uh, wisdom is described in the scriptures. James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it not by their compelling arguments, it says, but by their good life, by deeds done in humility, the humility that comes from wisdom. Not surprisingly, there is a remarkable amount of, of unity and consistency 
in the Bible's description of what it looks like to walk with wisdom, which is literally what this passage says. Look at some of these words that are so familiar to us that keep echoing, resounding through the scripture to describe what wisdom looks like and sounds like. Passion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, inner mastery, consideration, peace-loving, full of mercy. Paul says, be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity or taking full advantage of those God-given moments when you sense the Spirit is working. Um, You're probably aware that in the New Testament, there are three different main kind of word groups to describe the ways that we might be called upon to speak up as followers of Jesus. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 talks about our witness. Acts chapter 5 verse 42 talks about um, our evangelism, our sharing good news, literally, is what that means. And 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 talks about our apologetics, uh, is the literal Greek word, our giving a reason for what we believe. So God calls us to make the most of an opportunity by being ready to share our experience of Jesus, or to share the good news about Jesus, or to share why we believe in this Jesus. And then God will do the rest. So so think about that. The best way, then, to take full advantage of an opportunity that God presents us with in a moment is to be prepared for it ahead of time, right? Just to wing it, but actually to have gathered some resources to be effective, to give some thought to how you might express yourself. So let me just walk back through those. So for example, the best way to be ready to witness to our experience of Jesus is probably to think ahead of time about a number of different ways that we have experienced him and how he has made a difference in our lives so that when the conversation goes that way, and maybe there's a point of connection with that other person's experience, we're going to be ready to talk about that experience in a succinct and compelling way. Let me tell you this. The world is not likely to be interested in what the Bible has to say. But the world is always interested in your experience and what you have to to share. Last week, I was on a plane coming back from Orlando. I was there for denominational meetings, and I was sitting next to a uh, 30-something woman named Melissa. And and I introduced myself when he sat down, uh, and, uh, and then I'd spent the next half hour, 45 minutes, just practicing curiosity with her, just asking questions and following those up with more questions and, and, uh, and, and learning about her and the things that matter to her. And I'd learned in the course of our conversation uh, that she had no interest in God whatsoever and did or did not believe in him, but she was passionately interested in her work. And at one point, she shared with me that that there was this moment in her life when she was working at this one company, and then through this just kind of amazing, unexpected set of circumstances, all of a sudden the door opened for her to enter into this different company. And and now her work experience was just dramatically different and how much she was loving it and finding it fulfilling. So just praying through this whole conversation in that moment, I thought, okay, here's, here's an opportunity that the Lord is opening up. And, and so I said, Melissa, don't you love those kind of mysterious, inexplicable moments in our lives where, where we have the sense of 
of, of like a, a hand reaching in from outside of our lives and just kind of arranging things in a way that works out for our best. And I just kind of left that there. And then I said, can I share, you, share with you a story from my own life? Um, I'm, I'm really aware in this moment that, um, that we're kind of stuck sitting next to each other for the next two hours. And, and I do not want to, I don't want to, you to feel like, here we go in this conversation. So really, only if it's something you'd be interested in. She said, oh, no, please, yeah, I'd like to hear. So I, I shared with her this story of, of just like, like in one sentence, my having been an atheist, my becoming a follower of Christ, but I'd already at that point committed to work at Procter & Gamble. I went to work at Procter and & Gamble and, and began wrestling with what God wanted me to do with the rest of my life and had a growing sense that God was calling me to ministry. And then I shared with her how, as a result of my sharing that with people at work, I was asked to leave Procter & Gamble. And then in, in like the next 48 hours, this opportunity came up to, uh, coincidentally, to work uh, at the church that I was part of. And I, I got to the end of the story, and she, her eyes and her mouth were just open. She said, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. So we're called to be ready to share our own experience of Jesus. We're also called to be ready to share the good news. And, and I think we're helped to think ahead of time about how we might just explain simply who this Jesus is and why he came and what that has to do with me and what that has to do with the person we're talking to. And I think it's helpful to just have a, a simple outline memorized that's in my head to not do the, the dump truck uh, dump now, but to share the portion of that that might be relevant to that person. And guess what? You have all already memorized this outline just by virtue of your being part of covenant. Here's how it goes. Just think about our crown logo and our statement of identity and our statement of calling. And look at how they provide just a very easy way to talk about the content of the gospel. The New Testament teaches that Jesus is the king who was promised to humanity. And God created us to live under his loving rule, to become his people and to live our lives for his kingdom and for his glory. That's why we exist. That's why we were created. Well, all of us, we want to be the kings and queens of our own small kingdoms. But that's never going to go well for us because that's not what God created for us, us for. He, he calls up us to stop ruling our own lives, which we're not doing such a great job of, and instead to place our lives under his loving rule. And when we do that, it makes all the difference. And now our lives, consistent with God's purpose for us, become a response to the love that God has shown to us. And we are invited to live a life of love, to, to love him and to love one another and to pour out his love on the world. The best way for us to be ready to give a reason for our faith might be to do a little homework ahead of time. Maybe you could commit to reading something or listening to a podcast once a year just to help you improve your ability to communicate why you believe. I, I, I want to share with you that I've had a number of conversations with non-Christians recently that have been such a joy but several non-Christians recently have made this observation to me. They've, they've expressed that they have been surprised and disappointed 
when they have asked Christians questions about their faith and why they believe what they do, and those Christians weren't able to articulate even a little bit why they believed what they did. They weren't able to answer, for instance, why they were confident that the Bible was authoritative and trustworthy, or why they believed that Christianity uniquely among the various world religions was the one that, uh, was the one that warranted our uh, belief. And I, I think that's a reasonable desire on their part that we would be able, at least in a little way, to answer some of those questions. So as you think about equipping yourself to give the reason for your faith, I want to recommend the writings of a man named Paul Copan. Uh, some of you may remember him. He came here and spoke at Covenant several years ago. He's written a bunch of articles, done podcasts, has several really practical books that just take different topics, different objections people have, different reasons it's difficult for people to believe the Christian faith, and he responds to them in a very, very gracious but thoughtful way, in a way that is very consistent with who we are as a church family. Uh, I actually have a, a copy of uh, one of his books, first one that comes up after the worship service and asks for it, can have it. Uh, it's a great resource. Uh, speaking of making the most of the opportunity, I just want to remind you about the opportunities we have called Conversations About Christianity, a great place to, to bring a friend who is wrestling with the Christian faith, asking questions about Christianity. And also, I just want to tell you that our upcoming sermon series uh, called Be Astonished, starting next Sunday, uh, would be a perfect place to bring someone. Uh, you've been showing love to your neighbor if they are beginning to show some curiosity about you and what you believe. This would be really an ideal and safe setting to, for us to just encounter Jesus all over again for the first time and to be struck by who he is. So uh, We have some invitations that Michelle made um, to invite people to, to that sermon series, and those are available uh, in the back and in the hub. So Paul says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. And then he goes on. And now he comes to the dimension of faith sharing that really doesn't have much to do with the content that we share, but has a whole lot to do with the manner in which we communicate that content. Uh, chapter 4, verse 6, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let your conversation be full of grace. So the root idea, as you probably know, the root idea of grace whenever we encounter in Scripture is the idea of giving a gift. So it's something that comes uh, not because the other person somehow is, is worth it or has paid for it or has earned what you are giving. It just is something that comes out of the generosity of your own heart. So um, grace goes the opposite direction from justice. Justice means you give what you get. You give what the other person deserves. It's, it's an eye for an eye way of communicating. Grace gives what it doesn't get, and it gives what isn't deserved. So if they're rude, be kind. If they are evil, be good. If they're stingy, be generous. If they're impatient, be patient. If they're immoral, don't judge. And then notice that word tucked in the middle of that, let your conversation be always full of grace. This connects with what we talked about last Sunday. It is so easy to love when, to love if, to love because, to love unless, to love until. And Paul says that we are to extend grace always. Then Paul goes on and he gives us this parallel. Let your conversation be always full of grace, that is, seasoned with salt. 
So what is this metaphor of salt getting at? Matthew 5.13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You've probably heard many times, if you've been a follower of Jesus for any years at all, that salt was, was used as a preservative in the ancient world. With no refrigerator, salt was really the only way to keep meat or fish from spoiling and rotting and, and becoming corrupt. But from everything that I've been able to tell by studying this passage of scripture and studying this metaphor in the ancient world and studying the ancient culture, that was, was not the only, and in fact, it wasn't even the most important way that salt was understood as a metaphor in the ancient world. The main thing that salt expressed as a metaphor or as a symbol wasn't preserving something or seasoning something. It was welcoming someone. The idea is captured in several traditional proverbs that come from the Middle East that I've come across in the study that I've been doing. I have eaten someone's salt. There is salt between us. We have tasted salt. By salt, we are one. These are all different things that capture the, the same idea of our being welcomed into someone's life, into their home, into their heart, and, and our beginning to form forge a friendship with one another. That's why salt was so often used in the ancient Middle East as a symbol for a covenant that was formed between two individuals. And you see this in Leviticus 2, Numbers 18, and 2 Chronicles 13, all of which talk about the salt of the covenant. This is where that imagery came from. Hospitality was a prized virtue among the desert-dwelling people of the ancient Near East. And sharing a meal with someone was considered a universal obligation for people in that, in that region. So you might offer them a place at your table. You might loan them your stable or even your bed. But to share your salt? That meant putting the most valuable thing that you owned on the table in front of that other person and inviting them to make use of it. So salt is a picture of going out of your way to move towards someone and to forge a friendship with that person, to welcome them in a way that, that takes strangers and makes them into friends and takes friends and makes them into family. So according to Jesus, that peaceable, gracious, intentional, friendship-making posture is supposed to characterize how we relate to others within the church family. Mark chapter 9, verse 50. Jesus says, have salt among yourselves. Be at peace with each other. And according to Paul, that same, that very same peaceable, gracious, intentional, friendship-making posture should mark how we relate to those who are outside the faith. I want to stay with this just for a moment longer. I think this is so important. If my primary way of thinking about, about my core calling as, as a Christian put in the midst of non-Christians in this world, if it, is, if it is to think in terms of stopping the spread of corruption, then how will I relate to those non-Christians? My posture is likely to be oppositional. 
I'm likely to see myself in a different moral category from them, to elevate myself above them, to judge them, to pull back from them, and to push them away from me. But if my primary way of thinking about what my core calling as a Christian is, as I am among non-Christians in this world, if it is to, to think of that in terms of turning strangers into friends and friends into family members, then my posture is not going to be oppositional, it's going to be invitational. I'm likely to see myself in the very same category that I see them. Every bit as spiritual needy as they are. Every bit as in need of grace. And to move toward them and draw them in toward me just as Christ did with me. Romans chapter 15, verse 7. On the plane down to Orlando last week, I sat next to two women. And uh, for the first 10 or 15 minutes or so, I listened to them uh, uh, in a kind of nonstop conversation as they were talking with each other about, um, about their friend's weight and their friend's cooking and their friend's choice of husband and how they were husbands and how they were lacking in all of those areas. And I, I found a way to break in. I introduced myself and, and I asked them about their trip. And, and they said that they were so excited because they were going down to Orlando to spend a week with their friends. And then they asked me what was, well, I asked them a bunch of questions we talked about it for a while. And then they asked me what was taking me to Orlando. And, and I told them that I was a pastor and that I was going to be together with a bunch of other pastors. And, and as always, I'm just thinking, okay, Lord, how might you want to lead this conversation? How could this turn to spiritual things? So, so I said, um, you know, um, one of the things that we're trying to do as we're together is just wrestle with the fact that really for so many people in our world, they've just kind of written off the church and Christianity as being completely irrelevant. And um, and there are a lot of people who really see the church negatively and, and, and even who are kind of hostile towards it, who, um, who just uh, have kind of decided that the church is not for them. And in this kind of divisive culture, there's just kind of this, this um, kind of intense passion and division uh, to which uh, Pat swung her fist in the air and said, they need Jesus. Um, and kind of like that, kind of like, they need Jesus. And I have to be honest, um, like, okay, I, this is who I was thinking I was talking with. Um, and, and all the air just kind of went out of me. And, I, and with, with genuine sadness, I just said, we all need Jesus. Don't we? I mean, if, we, if we're thinking in terms of, I've got something they don't have, then it's just so easy to, to just look down on them and judgment and we'll need Jesus. To which this woman um, dropped her hands, opened her eyes in kind of a wide-eyed look, the smile that had been on her face up to that point just kind of slid off her face. She just kind of stared at me for a moment. And then she looked at her friend and she said, I want to go to his church. Let 
Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. That is, relate to those outside the faith in a way that turns strangers into friends and friends into family. Remember that, Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth. What comes next? It's this whole business about salt losing its saltiness. Well, salt can't lose its saltiness. The only way that salt is not salty is if it never comes in contact with the thing that's supposed to be salted. Look at the example that Jesus sets us in this area of stepping into the the whatever of the unbelieving world. Listen to this theme that runs through the Gospels. Matthew 9, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Matthew 11, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Luke chapter 15, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Luke chapter 7, if this man were really a prophet, he would know what kind of a woman is touching him. She's a sinner. It's the reaction that wells up from those whose approach to the surrounding culture is oppositional instead of invitational. We're called to follow Jesus' example and to to wade in with grace. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. One resource said that that last phrase could be translated, so that you know how to take up the conversation. I love that. I love that. And I think that is such a perfect prayer to pray in every interaction we have with non-Christians. Spirit of God, how would you have me take up this conversation? When I was a kid, we had a pair of lamps in our living room. And they had, um, each of them had a circle of prisms hanging down around the light bulb. And, and I loved going in and taking one of the prisms off and walking over to the window and holding it up in the sunshine and watching how it just, the beauty of that light passing through the prism transformed that whole room. As I was preparing this message, it occurred to me that that is really how the New Testament thinks about our role as witnesses. That we might shine in this world of ours like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of life. Our sharing our faith is not a matter of constructing a brilliant argument that will overwhelm and convince people. Our sharing our faith is nothing more than God lifting us up and putting us down between himself and someone he loves. in order that his light might shine through us. My job is just to stand there and to open my life as best I know to his light and and let it be his beauty that others encounter in me. That's God's invitation to you today. As we come to our closing song, I want to shift metaphors back from uh, light shining through us to a song that we sing, uh, which was the theme, obviously, of the whole service. 
I came across recently uh, this bit of writing in a book called The Comfort of Crows by Margaret Renkel. It's called Praise Song for the Praise Song of a Song Sparrow in Winter. He came from somewhere north of here, and I didn't expect him to stay. There has never been a song sparrow in this yard during our time here, but this one song sparrow has taken up residence. He sings from the pine tree next to the driveway. He sings from the middle of the power line above the road. He sings from inside a hefty bush at the end of the garden. All day long, he sings and sings. It's a loud, piercing song that shudders his whole body, a song that lifts straight through the clouds and far beyond the sky. All this long winter long, the song sparrow in his pine tree pulpit has been teaching me that one exuberant, unceasing song can change everything.